Welcome to Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord, and uh, with me, as you can see and or you're about to hear, there's Ronnie. Um, so Group Thinkers is the podcast from RKD Group, and on each and every episode, we're honestly, at this point, we're just trying to learn from people. Uh, and, you know, we have a wide range of guests that sit down with us, and, and we like to explore different avenues of nonprofit marketing and fundraising. We like to explore people's journeys. Uh, and it's because we have come to really appreciate how people's journeys form who they are and what they're doing. And uh, this is a special episode for us because we're putting this episode out during uh, Mental Health Week, Mental Illness Awareness Week, which is the first full week of October every year. And on this episode, we have Becky Endicott, who is a part of the team behind We Are For Good. Ronnie, tell us a little bit about Becky and the We Are For Good movement. So Becky starts, she's got a really fascinating journey. I feel like I say that a lot, but it, it's true. She she started out, she was in the nonprofit sector for 20 years, and she takes us through that journey some, but she really, she got to a point where just this, the pressure and the and the mental load on her became too much, and it's something that we see across the sector a lot. This idea of burnout. We've talked about it, and and she just kind of had this moment of I need to do something different. And she'll talk she'll talk all about it in the episode. So she, along with John McCoy, started We Are for Good, and it's it's a social impact movement. Uh, and and they have a podcast that's extremely popular, and uh, she just really is just a fabulous journey. <laughs> yeah, and a, and a fabulous person. I think the thing that strikes me about uh, We Are For Good is that um, Becky and John are in this to lift people up, to create community, which is uh, you know a group of people with shared beliefs and shared values. And so they're in fact spreading good, spreading good ideas, and uh, and and that's refreshing. And they do such a great job of creating content and telling people's stories and telling their own story. And so, um, you know, it's it's frankly it's a, a pleasure for us and an honor for us to get to have her tell her story and a part of her story with her mental health journey. Uh, and it's an important conversation, not just for this week. But for those of us in the sector, uh, as we navigate, you know, continued pressure, and it's not just a new thing. It's just that I think that we're uh, we're now becoming more in tune with the opportunity and the importance of of walking through these things out loud. So um, this is a it's a, a special episode, and so without further ado, here's Becky Endicott of We Are for Good on Group Thinkers. So Becky, we are we're gonna just dive right into this thing. First of all, welcome. That's the first part. It's welcome. Thanks but for having I, me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, we're thrilled to have you here. And here's where I want to dive in. Like we we wanted to have this conversation because mental health is such a focus of your movement, yours and John's movement. And uh, when we release this, we'll be a part of. Um, us thinking about and talking about some of the mental health challenges that uh, are pervasive within the space. And so 
Um, we're going to get into your story today, but where I want to start is in the last three years, have there been multiple moments, many moments? How often have you found yourself like on the verge of significant anxiety around the work of We Are For Good and the pressure around the movement that you've created? Are you kidding? Every dang day of my life, I'm feeling the anxiety and the pressure of it. Oh, yeah, it is. I could have never foreseen this and what would come of it. And yeah, my therapist and I talk about it every Wednesday afternoon and how to navigate. Um, How do you lean into being an influencer when you don't want to be an influencer, but you want the conversation to keep going and you want it to keep growing and you want to be in it enough that you can help guide because you've tripped through it and failed through it. Um, but yeah, having, having the weight of that, uh, feels like a lot sometimes, but it's like one of the most dignified, um, and beautiful obligations and, Mm -hmm. and things that I've taken into my life because of how it's connected me to human beings like never before. Is it, more, less, or different than the pressure you felt as a fundraiser? Uh, very good question. I would say it's different. Um, I think when you have people who are willing to step forward and share the most vulnerable and difficult parts of their life with you, there is this responsibility at least I feel it as an empath and as an Enneagram too, I feel the need to carry that and nurture it incredibly well. And the amount of suffering that happens in the sector um, that's whispered about and emailed to me and DM to me and um, apologize for, I mean, I get the apology before anyone ever goes into their story, which tells me how sick we are because we're finding that we can't even just say it without saying, am I bothering you? Is this bird, is this a burden on you? Um, is this going to stigmatize me to you? And so um, I would say it's a different feeling than if I had to go in and ask for $10 million for a project. And that kind of is a, to me, that's more of an adrenaline rush. This, this feels like something like your child, like that you need to walk very carefully with, treat very carefully and just sit back and listen and understand. And that's really where I think I am is just trying to understand where the sector is, where I am, where people are and how we can be a conduit to getting healing, unlearning, more learning um, and more kindness and compassion everywhere we go. Uh, okay, so that that's a good segue into let's rewind all the way back. Let's okay. let's rewind to like little Becky. What was the first thing that little Becky wanted to be when she grew up? Okay, are you ready for this? Little Becky wanted to be a horror author. Um, when I was very small, um, my dad is a voracious reader. Everyone in my family reads a lot, and my dad loves Stephen King. And I really wanted to connect with my dad um, on my books. Um, And so I started out reading um, The Stand, um, which was really insanely long. It's like almost a thousand pages, like when I was 10. And it scared me. Yeah, Yeah, it scared me enough that I didn't read it again until I was about 13. And I just love sitting at my grandma's typewriter. 
and like click, 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 click and typing a story out. And I think I was just a born storyteller. So um, when I got older, I thought, you know, when I was in middle school, I wanted to be the um, on-air public relations or talent for the St. Louis Cardinals because I love Cardinals baseball so much. But um, yeah, the writing has always been there for me. And I always shockingly had a lot to say. It's not shocking. There it's not shocking. shocking for anybody. No. <laughs> it's not shocking. Is there a, a horror novel out there written by you? Oh, somewhere? yes. Ooh. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I used to write them for my father on the typewriter, and it would be, you know, I, I don't do any of the things I teach people now. Like, there's there's not a lot of conflict. There's no ebb and flow. There's no hero's journey. There's no anchors and emotion. It was just kind of like I walked into the scary house. Something jumped out. I did something, they did something, and and it was just these short little blurbs that would take me forever because when you're a kid trying to type on a typewriter and you're backing up and all the things, yeah, I'm sure there are many out there that my parents can unearth and embarrass me with, (laughs) Ronnie, so. That's amazing. Yeah. So mine wasn't uh, of the horror variety. Mine was more of the sci-fi adventure variety and, and... they still, to this day, my parents will bring uh, folders with brads. <laughs> you remember the yes. little, like, the brads yes. that you would stick in and, like, separate apart? Uh, where, you know, stories that they've kept, the all the wild adventures. So, okay, so from this idea of telling stories, how the heck did you end up as a fundraiser? Like, what was that journey <laughs> out of school, like this... And it is scary, right? Like there are some scary movies in it. There's the horror back, which is ironic because I don't like read. I don't know that I've read two horror novels my whole life Hmm. um, because that's just not my jam. But, you know, I I was a public relations and marketing uh, major in college and I did a lot of internships in the summer. And I realized quickly that my internships were showing me what I did not want to do in life. So I did. I worked at an agency. I did not like that at all. Um, I worked at a very, very massive oil company. Um, and you would know the name, you know, um, that I worked in their corporate communications department and was way scared out of being a female, um, trying to work on communications and find my voice in that sector. And then I found nonprofit and it just felt like my people. It felt like home and, got my job at the Science Museum, Oklahoma. Um, those who grew up around here would know it used to be called Omniplex. And it, it was such a great irony and challenge for me as a writer um, because I knew nothing about science. And I, and I was writing to the lowest common denominator um, of a reader, which was great because that was me. So um, and then a little ways into that journey, I got a call from my alma mater, which was Oklahoma State University's foundation. And they said, we've never had a marketing department. Um, we know you're young, but we think you could come build this for us. And I was 24 at the time. I did not know what I was doing. Um, and I basically said, well, um, if I'm going to come up here, I'm just going to find a way to tell the story of philanthropy in a way that it's never been told before. And do I have your permission to do that? And my boss at the time, Kirk Jewell, said, go for it. I'll give you a budget. Um, had a great mentor, um, Bob Klein, who's the VP of development. And they just let me run. And they were very, very wise in that they put me in every marketing and communications class, webinar, book that I wanted to consume, but they also put me in every development training 
So I would know the language. I would know pathways. I would know donor journeys. I would know strategy. And so um, I kind of got this dual education at Oklahoma State University at a time when it was having crazy philanthropy. Um, We were in the middle of a billion-dollar campaign um, that we helped launch. um, And my little-known fact, John McCoy, my business partner at We Are For Good, he was the one that just pulled that logo out. He's a graphic designer out from his hip pocket after we had paid a major marketing firm (laughs) to develop. He ended up developing it. And yeah, it was the time of Boom Pickens and we would walk into him, you know, an event and he would just keep giving out hundred million dollar gifts everywhere we turn for all kinds of things. And, and it seemed normal. And, um, and, and I thought it was normal to have a million dollar marketing budget. Um, that is not normal. And those were the days of the land of milk and honey. And then I went into healthcare philanthropy, moved back to Oklahoma city, worked for Oklahoma's largest not-for-profit healthcare employee. We were getting sued by a very major country music star. That was the beginning of my journey and realized that we had no culture of philanthropy there. And so I recruited John again. He's like my little brother, my work little brother to this um, nonprofit. And we stayed 10 years testing these theories that we had about humanity, about the way that we could connect with human beings, not necessarily to raise money, but to create a connection that was deeper, that yes, money would be a part of that, giving would be a part of it, but it was about movements. It was about belief. It was about values. It was about humanity. And we were lucky enough again to have a CEO that gave us leverage to try out some of these things and shocked us all when they worked. So, um, but being nice tends to work and I don't want to sugarcoat it that much, but there is something in showing up for another human being kindly that has been very, um, it's been a great multiplier for our company. I'm always so fascinated by the guests we have when they start telling us their path, first of all, how they get into the nonprofit field is always so similar of like, I just kind of ended up there. I'm not really sure. (laughs) All of us. Um, But then the other part I'm starting to hear a lot of, like you just said, I I was 25, I was 24 and they gave me this huge budget and said, go with it. And you're, I mean, I I said the same thing. We just talked to Rhea Wong and I said, when I was that age, I didn't know what I was doing. I can't imagine being given that kind of a budget and saying, go, here you go, just run with it. So I want to tie that a little bit to, you know, you, you worked in the, in the nonprofit field for so long, and, and I know the pressure is there. The, uh, the burnout is a real thing in the industry. Can you take us through how you got from working in that field with John to kind of starting the We Are For Good movement that you have going now? Yeah, I, I thank you for talking just about pressures and compassion fatigue, burnout. I think even just power dynamics, the, everything that comes as a result of trying to feed a machine that has so much more power than you is is something that something happens to our bodies and our minds when we do that. And so we had um we we were tasked with this um, opportunity from our CEO. And he said, um, I love how I say tasked with an opportunity. That's That was the PR way to say it when it was, hey, Becky and John, go build an employee giving campaign. And so 
and you've got like four months. And so the journey of We're For Good really started with that challenge because we started doing all this research on employee giving campaigns and we just hated every single one of them. And we we just like clean design. We like smart marketing and everything we were looking at was so kitschy and, you know, Casino Royale and get a cart with filled with, you know, candy bars and go hand them out with your pledge cards to your nurses on night, you know, during night rotations. And it was like nothing connected. And so we said, what if we did everything the opposite? What if we literally flipped that donor pyramid upside down and we said, what if we focus on that base? And what if we worked on telling their story? And what if it wasn't just an employee campaign? What if it was an internal movement that if we could make the internal piece so strong that people who saw it from the outside would want to be a part of it, or they would see it from the outside and it would inspire trust and it would inspire innovation and it would inspire healing. And so we basically started this employee campaign asking two questions and it was, what are you passionate about? And would you consider making a gift of any amount there? And it doesn't matter what it is. It can be $1. It can be $100. It could be 10 hours of paid time off. It could be, um, you know, a one-time gift. And so we just made it so much less about the money and more about the story. And the more we heard each other's stories, the more we started to see each other in different lights. And it was completely, again, uh, unfocused on the the donor pyramid because if we were going to the base, then that meant we needed to talk a lot less to the C-suite and we needed to talk a lot more to our frontline workers, to our janitors, to the men who worked in the boiler rooms or the tech, you know, the respiratory tech. And all of a sudden, the way that we saw each other was flipped on its head. And we didn't see Ronnie. We saw a dad who had a premature baby who almost died. But if it wasn't for the NICU, then Ronnie wouldn't have been a father. That's way different than seeing Ronnie from IT. And or not even knowing that Janice, who works in the burn center, has this very unique connection to transplant because her husband got her kidney, you know, and these stories, when it became about the story and about the human being, the, the financial part was just ancillary, but it ended up being a huge component. And so we moved from about 300 donors giving about $22,000 a year out of 10,000 employees um, to uh, now it's almost 4,000 donors a year giving a million dollars back to this nonprofit. And it's, nurses giving back. And it's, you know, it's, it's a woman pushing, um, you know, a cleaning cart who's giving $10, you know, per pay period, which is a lot to her because her mom passed away from cancer and this is their family's legacy. And the thing that we weren't expecting was how it changed us as human beings and what we saw as a result of that. And so as we're powering this thing, and it's a big machine to power, 10,000 people trying to get those messages out, which, you know, you get the, the stress, there comes the stress and the anxiety, but the joy that comes on the back end of giving people agency to share that story and to allow it to inspire somebody else to come forward because that's their story. They just haven't breathed it out loud yet. And so we noticed that it was culture shifting 
People wanted to stay longer at the organization. They wanted to rep the brand everywhere they could on their e-signature. They wanted to wear the t-shirts. So then giving became a brand and being a part of the movement became a brand. And we basically took a step back and said, we think we've stumbled on something. I don't think it's employee giving. We think it's bigger than that. What if we applied this to a gala? Sorry, we're from Oklahoma, so we call it gala, not gala. Um, we're Hicks. And um, what if we applied it to this you know, $50 million campaign we have going on? And when we started to nestle values in there, we started to nestle story, we started to put the problem, the focus, the need, and the solution in front of everybody, not just that top donor who could make, who could give it all. You know, I had a great donor one time that says, you can't take, when you die, you can't take any of it, you know, in a U-Haul trailer, nothing. So leave it all behind. And we just started giving that exercise to everyone. And the, the effect did have the effect that we wanted it to have. It was not just a movement internally, then it we turned it to our board and then we turned it into our donors. Then we turned it over into the community and there was just a way for anyone to be able to plug in. And we just kind of cocked our eyebrow and said, okay, how do we get a model around this? How do we get a framework? How do we have more conversations about how story, about how thinking differently, about upending the way we've always been taught and PS, like taking care of ourselves. How do we have a bigger conversation about that? And John is such a serial entrepreneur and so wise. And he said, look, I think if we could drop a podcast, no one's having this conversation and long form content and wrapping it in community. And if we did it three days a week, we could chart content and community so fast that after a while, no one could catch us unless they were doing it five times a week, which he did try to talk me into. And I said, no. Um, <laughs> so we're doing what what our producer, Julie, and I can handle, but he's right. And now we're three years in, 460-something episodes. We actually just crossed half a million downloads on Friday. And it has turned into so much more than a media company. It's turned into more of a conversation. It is a movement and it's a group of people rising up saying, we think we can make a difference in the world. We're still ridiculous idealists, but we want to do it differently. We want to do it together and we want to try some stuff and we want to have the freedom to try some stuff, which that's our real technical phrase for innovation. So that's kind of the we are for good inception story. That's, it's such a fascinating journey. It really it's so is. so bizarre, isn't it? It <laughs> I'm is. I'm still trying it to is. get my and arms around it. Right. But that's, I think that's what's. Um, what's so joyful about people's stories is because everyone's story is a roller coaster. And that doesn't mean that there's always ups and downs. Sometimes it's that you spin around or that you find yourself upside down. Like that's, that's a part of the beauty of both the community, but then also the content that, that you and John and, and Julie put out is that you're celebrating individuals and individual enlightenment, individual contributions. And um, it's it's refreshing to see a, a model, even though it's a lot, it's a lot on, <laughs> on y'all in terms of recording three times a week and putting out stuff. Um, but it's, it's refreshing because it does celebrate people. It celebrates individuals. Um, to, uh, so there's, there's two different places that my mind goes. I want to, I want to come back to something that you said about trust as it relates to some of this stuff, because we're, 
um, obsessed with trust right now. So I want to come back to that. But before we get there, uh, I want to have you share a little bit of the story and the aspect of mental health uh, within your story, uh, because it's connected through all of these things, through the formation of the movement, through, um, which by the way, for our audience, there's a, a fantastic episode that you can find uh, where Becky goes through her story and talks about uh, a mental health challenge and, and moment uh, or series of moments. And so um, if you would be so kind as to share a, a snippet of that uh, with us, we'd certainly appreciate it. Justin, you're being so kind. Ju Justin's like talking about my complete and total nervous breakdown, which was like a complete and mental collapse. And I'm so open about sharing it. I want to thank you guys for holding space for it because when I was starting to feel sick, I didn't know anybody in my whole world. And I knew a lot of people in nonprofit who had had some sort of a mental crisis while they were working in their mental health job. Um, and so I, I mean, my journey, you are most welcome to listen to it. I shared it on the We Are For Good podcast um, as our first episode on our first ever mental health week, which is a week we take it over the podcast and we drop five episodes during the week all about how to care for yourself because we just believe mental wellness is somehow this thing that's in the trunk and nonprofit. We don't talk about it. We don't address it. We don't pull it out. And yet it's the thing that may be the thing that holds us all together. It could be foundational in everything because when you have joy in your life, you want to pour in to creativity, into people, into your work, into things that are important to you. And when you don't, it's hard to pour into anything. And so I just was feeling very unwell in a season. This was 2018. Um, started started out with my primary care physician. I wasn't sleeping well. My body didn't feel well. And just for some context for your listeners, I mean, I had two young children at the time, four and seven-year-old uh, daughters. I was um, full-time working mom. Um, I and that means I was at 150% every day because I would give my job 100% and then I would give my kids try to give them 100% and you know the percentages wouldn't always work out and I was just really tired and I thought like every single person who doesn't feel well you know that I had a tumor or something so we ruled that out immediately and um, I I remember one time at one of my appointments my doctor looked at me and said are you feeling anxious. Um, because the way I explained it to her was, I feel like when I lay down in bed at night, I have 50 espressos like charging through my body. And while I'm exhausted, I can't figure out why I feel so charged and amped up and come to find out that was adrenaline. And it was just an inability to just turn anything off. And I just think in this work, we care so much. There are so many people who are so dedicated to their nonprofit, to their mission, to their beneficiaries, to the people who are getting their services that they just cannot let go. And I think that this is the thing that is really bankrupting the sector in a way that's not financial, but it has very deep financial, um, you know, off-puttings from it. So I um, ended up studying for the CFRE. Um, and I was trying to get my CFRE and while I was studying for it, I had that, whatever that snap is, that moment where I just snapped 
And I was sitting on the couch and I found myself staring about five inches from the wall, hysterically crying. And had and my heart was just racing. I didn't know at the time I was having a panic attack. And I was I'm not a big crier. Um, another part of the problem, don't bury your feelings. <laughs> and and I just felt panicky. And the only way that I knew how to deal with stress at the time, because I had to pass this exam, I felt so much pressure, like many people taking that exam, that I needed to pass it. And I knew the pass rate was not high. And so through my nervous breakdown, I picked up my binder and I picked up my book and I kept going. And Hmm. it is still today the most insane thing I have ever done um, that I would keep going. and Just kind of grind through it. Yes. like, and, And what in our brain makes us feel like we have to grind through it? And finally, you know, I was having 18 hour a day panic attacks. Like I would have them in my sleep, you know, which gives you stress dreams and these horrible things. And finally, my husband looked at me um, and he's just the most wonderful man. And he was an attorney and he was getting ready to go to court. And he said, do I have your permission to take over right now? And it was like the first time I let go and I said, yes. And he canceled his trial date. He drove me to the doctor. I got nine months worth of trying to figure out the right psychotropic, you know, prescription medicine that I could take that would not drain my energy or not make me feel depressed. And, you know, I was at the same time trying to finish out this $46 million campaign. And I had a $5 million burn endowment uh, campaign. I was also trying to fundraise for on the side as a major gift officer. And I was trying so hard to finish those things up at year end because I decided I was going to take three months off. And I was going to take short-term disability. And I did all the research on that. I was really lucky to work for a company that just let me go for three months. And But the grind to get there set me back probably a month because I think for the first month that I was in that, that just sitting at home, I would just stare out the window, trying to mm. quiet my mind, trying to just quiet my body and just go outside, walk the dog maybe read a book, but mostly not do much. And it took a good month for me to unwind just the neuro um, trauma and just that constant being on and having what I call a mental Rolodex of things that you need to do in your life, just flitting all the time, even when you lay down. And so it was really important for us to share that story out loud and say, am I the only one dealing with this? Because if I am, okay, that's a journey for me. But if I'm not, there are tenants to be learned here. And community was really the thing that got me out of it. Finding a therapist, finding a psychiatrist, telling my friends, getting support at work. And I had been masking and masking my pain because I knew everybody else at work had stress and pain and it was not the way. And so it's been a real blessing for us to just to be able to hold space for nonprofit professionals to talk to us about that. And I would say ever since that episode drops, I get a story a week from somebody that I don't know who hits me up in a DM, an email, um, and just tells me their story and, and basically whispers, that's me too. And I, and I think we're just now beginning to uncover how deep this is because no one's having this conversation. Absolutely. And, and, um, it's very brave, by the way, for you to be willing to share it. And it's oh, important for it's people to be able to 
you know, honor that space and, uh, and also allow for themselves to be able to share those things, whether or not you send it in a DM to Becky or you have it, have the conversation with your, your partner, your spouse. Um, and, and you're right. I think you know, I was actually listening to this weekend. Um, Adam Grant is one of my go-to weekend oh, lessons so and his episode with Jim Gaffigan and Gaffigan's talking about the <laughs> pandemic so impact, funny. right? But yeah. he's talking about the pandemic impact on his kids and, uh, and, uh, you know, I've shared with you, my wife being a, a principal at elementary school, Ronnie and I have kids about the same age as you and, and you see the impact on them. And sometimes we don't even realize the last couple of years, the impact on ourselves on top of yeah. what we see, you know, in other places. So thank you for bringing um, that up because I have really lived this mental health journey out loud to my daughters and one of them in, in the pandemic, you know, and she's, consented that I can share this with people on the podcast, you know, that she has an anxiety disorder. And I think we made changes in our life as a way to not grind it out. Back to your point. I mean, both my kids get a mental health day every single year where they get to come to me and say, I don't want to go to school. It's too much. I need a day off. And we go play that day. And at lunch, we talk about how we're doing. We have you know, a check-in every single day on how our body is and how it's feeling. We have a check-in every day to know what was the good point of our day and what was the low point about our day. We make time to un unwind and disconnect from tech. And so I do think that having this conversation in a louder way is a good thing to model to our kids and to our coworkers too. And, and it's the healthiest thing for ourselves. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like together. it is, it's, yeah, it's the healthiest totally. thing for ourselves. And, you know, it's funny because you, you alluded to this and it's something that's near and dear for us. And we wrapped it in a way that was, you know, um, part humor, but we also wanted to be approachable. And that's that in, in so much of the stuff that we've been putting out over the last, you know, handful of months, when we talk about you know, quitting bad fundraising, et cetera. And we talk specifically about a hamster on a wheel. And uh, and that's not intended to be in any way um, belittling or reducing of those of us who are addicted to our work. The reality is hamsters, they they show signs of addiction, right? They, you get on the wheel because you think that that's what you're supposed to do. And you run and you run faster because that, is what you're conditioning yourself to do. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves, right? And certainly in the nonprofit space, like we're faced with so many different pressures that sometimes the thing that we know that is comfort is just to get on and keep running, even if it's not necessarily the best thing for us, right? You just keep running, keep running, keep running. And it has an impact over time. Oh, it really does. You're so right. I, I see it all the time. And, and, how, how can we do all the things? Drink water, get outside, work out, eat healthy, have mental health breaks, play with our kids, do our work. I mean, empty the dishwasher. The list is so long and it's so unachievable. And I think it's very interesting for like Gen X, you know, specifically I'm, I'm part of Gen X. And, and one of the things I've learned is that girls who grew up in the eighties, you know, had all the gender norms put on them. You know, this is what a mom looks like, but we were also told you can do anything you want to do. You can burst through the glass ceiling, but it's hard to do both concurrently. And I, I just think that spending some time in, in quiet and disconnect mm -hmm 
is a way to, to ground ourselves again and give us agency over quiet and ease yeah. and creativity. So thanks for saying that. Yeah. Um, okay. So on the, uh, on the idea of trust, um, as I mentioned, we're uh, increasingly, we find ourselves focused on thinking about trust and more so thinking about what it looks like to be worthy of someone else's trust. Not saying be trustworthy because that's like this absentness that you can't quite achieve, but you can be worthy of someone else's trust. How does that idea play out in the work of We Are For Good? Okay. Trust is one of the few things I think in life that you cannot fabricate right now. And in a time where we are so digitally connected and interdependent on our tech, we don't know who to trust online anymore. And I think that people are, you look at like the Edelman trust barometer. I I know you guys have seen that, like even last year, again, nonprofit second straight year that trust has gone down. I mean, corporations are more trusted than nonprofits right now, which is absolutely shocking. And I have a lot of theories about why I think that is, but one, we're not telling our story well. We're not telling the story of what's happening well. And I don't mean like the Norman Rockwell version of what's happening that used to be sort of the MO. And believe me, I was a part of powering some of that (laughs) communications back in the day, because that is how it was framed to be. These are the great things about our organization. We don't want to show you, you know, what's behind the curtain, but we got to talk about what we need. We got to talk about harm. And I think when you are more authentic, I think when you are more vulnerable, there is something that happens with trust there. And I just, I just think we're watching what's happening with Twitter and X. We're watching what's happening with mainstream media and people don't know what platforms are trusted. They don't know which influencers are trusted. So if you can bake that in on the front end, if you can say, um, you know, this is who I am. These are the values I stand for. And I want you to hold me accountable to them. And we have eight values. We are for good. And we talk about them all the time because we see them all the time in our content. And the most beautiful thing that happens is when the audience calls them out for us, when they see them reflected. We see this all the time online, or sometimes our guest, you know, has, is a fan of the show and they call them back out. Or um, sometimes we get called in, which is so great, you know, where somebody says, I saw this on your website. And it doesn't feel like it's supporting this, which has happened at least three times that I can think of in our work. And every single time we go back and say, thank you for feeling brave enough that you could tell us this. Thank you for telling us because you're right. And we're re-examining it. And by the way, like you're, you're forever going to be one of our dear friends that we think is going to tell us when we have broccoli in our teeth. And so we, I just think it is the future. We're watching what's happening with trust-based philanthropy. I mean, what Mackenzie Scott has sort of ushered in, um, trust-based leadership was one of our nine trends that we said, this is the future at the beginning of the year, um, of what we see. And we're seeing it play out in some really beautiful ways. Um, I think, um, one, one example, um, we interviewed Mona Sinha, who is the chairman 
chairwoman of the board for women moving millions. And you have to have a million dollars to even get into this nonprofit. And they're moving the needle, these women, many, many of them on major equity issues. And she's saying, you know, trust has got to be baked in everywhere. And it's got to be like for her, she says, you know, you've got to switch the way you think about trust with your board. You know, we need to, the board needs to be depending on you rather than you depending on the board. How do we all believe so deeply in this vision that we're going to be honest, that we're going to hold each other accountable, that we're going to be entirely transparent. We're going to say when we messed up, we're going to own our behavior. Something just happens when you start leading like that. And we're watching cultures where the culture is getting so much healthier because the leader is being more transparent about their struggles and about what they're working through. They're spending more time listening to staff and not just top donors. And so all of that has an effect in the way that you are represented and your brand's represented. It shows up in your content. It shows up in your photos. I think you want to be, you know, you want to commit to like ethical storytelling. People start to feel that and they start to feel safe with you. And safety and trust are things I think we're all desperately looking for right now post-pandemic. And we really look at the world as BC and AC, like before COVID and after COVID. It was just kind of like, how are we going to move forward? And we didn't want to be looking in the rearview mirror. We wanted to look at what's working right now. And being authentic, being curious, bringing other people along and saying, I'm sorry when you mess up. It is one of the greatest currencies that you cannot fake ever. You can't buy it. You cannot fake it. And so I think that is the future of what we're going to see in media. And I think we're going to start seeing what you said before, which is like a creator economy. It's going to be less about what big media companies put out and more about what the one creator is going to do and how do nonprofits think about that in a way that they are a creator that we have a trust-based duty of care, not just to our donors. That would be the pyramid. We got a duty of care to the people behind us who are powering us on staff. We've got a duty of care to these volunteers, to the guy keeping the light on for us. And all of a sudden, trust bakes into that. And we're seeing just some incredible organizations take off who've actually implemented this. That's so true. I mean, trust is, is it's absolutely the, the bedrock of every relationship we have, of every interaction with anyone. And we found it, like Justin said, we've been obsessed with this idea of trust over the last, I don't know how many months. And so we did <clears throat> we did some research where we asked donors, what causes you to trust or not trust a nonprofit organization? And, you know, without getting to, into all the details of it, like the two things that stood out were transparency and competence. So, Tell me about what you're going to do and actually do it and report back on what you're doing. It seems so simple, but sometimes we just fail in that. Um, Okay. I want to get to something before we, we wrap up. So I want to do a lightning round of questions here. All right. You're right. What is the worst feedback you've ever received? Becky has a pecking order. Um, This was in a 360 evaluation I got when I was 26. Becky has a pecking order. If you are a good person and a good human, she gives you your attention. If you're a pain in the butt, you go to the bottom of her pack. 
And guess what? It was 100% true. <laughs> and somebody <laughs> called me out for it. <laughs> oh. I have a, we have a friend who uh, I, I have given her that unsolicited um, 360 feedback, but we refer to it as Janet Island. That she puts them on an <laughs> island that no one can reach. <laughs> that it, Oh, oh, that person, the they island. went to Janet Island. Oh, yeah, Becky Island. Yeah, oh, that's hilarious. It reminds me of the island of Lost Boys and Pinocchio. Like, I don't want to create that <laughs> for people. <laughs> hilarious. Banished. All right. Okay. What's your ideal day? Work My or not work? E- either way. Oh, well, I definitely would not be working, but yeah. I would be interacting uh, with people that I care about. So I would probably be on a run. I would probably be on the mountains. Um, I would definitely have coffee and chocolate at some point. And then I would probably have dogs around me and my children. And um, yeah, just being untethered and unconnected to something sounds like a great day to me. Sounds pretty good. Who are you learning from right now? I'm on a really big Seth Godin kick right now. Uh, We were lucky enough to get to interview him for the launch of our season. And he's just been this great marketing oracle for me since I was, I found one of his books when I was 25 and, and he always just seemed like this soothsayer of saying the things that I was thinking in my head, but I did not see anyone implementing in my world or in my life. And now, and, and he's so kind and we had this great conversation with him and he was generous. And I want people to know this about him, um, that even when the cameras were off, he turned to us and said, I love what you're doing. I want it to keep going. How can I help your business? And then he gave us an hour of coaching into what was working, what wasn't working. And it, it just, and he, of course, there's so many brilliant ahas that he would bring there, but his humanity and how true he is to himself and to what he believes. And this is a guy who was raised by people in the nonprofit, you know, sector professor. And, and I just, I just think he's a humanitarian at heart and he gives me hope. So I'll say Seth right now, this is not lightning at all. I'm talking way too long. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Last one. Just like a short answer, like Seth Godin. No, there's gotta be some explanation, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, You have to unpack it. I'll be more succinct. Lightning and thunder, why, right? Yeah. Lightning, Light, thunder. lightning and yeah. thunder, okay, right? Great, great, mm-hmm. thunder. Yeah, I mean, from Oklahoma City, I love the thunder. So let's do yeah. this. There you go. Okay, last one. We're gonna put you back in the podcast host seat. So, is there anything you'd like to ask us? Of course. Um, this is my favorite, not my new favorite question. What was uh, meal time like for your family around the dinner table, both of you? Okay. I'll I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, Mealtime. So I have a a younger brother, four and a half years younger. And so mealtime was always all four of us sitting around the table. uh, No, you know, not watching TV or anything in the, in the, in the kitchen and probably me kicking my brother under the table or vice versa (laughs) at some point. Um, But it was definitely a focal point of our family to get together every evening and eat a meal together. Love it. What about you, Justin? First of all, sticking firstborns, kicking the the baby. And then pretending like you didn't do anything. (laughs) Lording over us secondborns. So uh, so I'm a secondborn. Um, My sister's five years older 
And, uh, and, and Ronnie, once every three weeks, that's what it looked like for me. My dad worked shift work his entire career. And so he would be either asleep once every three weeks in the evenings, or he would be at work. Uh, and so we would have all four of us together uh, one week out of three. And so the norm was actually irregular. Uh, but when I think about whenever the four of us were sitting down together, it was um, mostly forks and knives on plates, very quiet, small town West Texas meal, probably included gravy. And then there was Justin who was always doing a bit. Like I was always the, you know, trying to create something around the table, either tell a story or tell a joke, or um, I wanted there to be noise. I wanted there to be activity. I wanted there to be energy and uh, and my family are all introverts. And so I think that that void, actually, I wanted it even more so because it wasn't there. Um, and it just made for like great time. It's just, a, uh, it's still that way, by the way, Thanksgiving, it's my sister's family. They're all pretty reserved. And then my family, we're all Tasmanian. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I come from a line of Tasmanians as well, like clearly, but I love that question so much because I think you just get a glimpse into the things that people care about and you get to know their people. It's just lovely. Thanks for sharing guys. Yeah. No problem. Becky, thanks for hanging out with us for a little bit today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me guys. We, we appreciate it. We love so much of the work that you and John and the we are for good team are doing. And, uh, and so, um, there's not really anything more than we could say that Seth Godin didn't say already, but um, just know how much we appreciate y'all and how much we appreciate the way that you're uh, lifting others up. It, it's our joy. And, and I know I, I, I feel like I start a little heavy on the front end saying it's a lot, but I have to say it's the most rewarding thing I have ever done other than having my children. So it mm. is a beautiful journey that's unfolding. Thanks for giving me space to talk about it. Yeah, right on. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, including how you can partner with RKD to accelerate growth for your fundraising and nonprofit marketing needs, visit rkdgroup.com.